Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Want to, uh, to welcome those of you here, not only Worship Center, but those of you out on the patio and those who are joining us uh, live stream uh, right now. My name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if this is your very first time, I want a special uh, thank you to or uh, welcome to you. Uh, but especially a shout out, I, I just appreciate you that are serving in First Impressions so much. You know, uh, uh, I know all the teams are mentioned. One of the teams that was not mentioned was our safety team. They kind of uh, kind of watches us as speakers to make sure no one shoots us or something like that. Uh, and uh, you know, this this might be one of those weeks. You know, who knows? And uh, so I just appreciate you so much. It was interesting. I was talking with with one of the men in our church. He's an elder, and we had coffee together a couple weeks ago, and he'd been to another state. I won't mention which one, but uh, he had been to another state uh, visiting some some people that had moved there from. Rocky Peak, and uh, he was just saying they'd gotten to a church uh, that was like a big church, but it was just like, they were just uh, so unfriendly, like no one to greet, there was no, there was no one to, to welcome, there was no one, and he was just saying like, man, I, he said, I, I never realized what a powerful influence uh, our First Impressions team has had here until it's, it's missing, and so for those of you who are serving uh, I, I appreciate it so much because it's, it's not really about just doing the job. It's about creating this warm environment where, where people that are uh, often far from God are, are coming. It's really a scary thing to go to church if you're not used to going to church. And uh, it's like you don't know what to expect. And it's what a difference you make in just creating a warm and welcoming environment. So I, too, want to just... Thank you for your service. We appreciate you. We're going to go into this time of teaching right now. Um, inside your, your program, as, as Rachel mentioned, there's a green and white message note sheet for those who are joining us uh, online right now that whatever platform you're using, you just go up there and click and kind of uh, download the, the message note sheet in whatever form you, you like it. There's several different forms. Um, but I'm excited about this time today. We're going to be we, uh, jumping into Scripture, excited about what God's going to be doing. And so let's pray together. So, Father, we thank you for uh, what you're doing in our lives, and most of all, we thank you for Jesus and who he is and, and what he's done for us and what he continues to do in our lives today as the risen, uh, the risen one, the king who rules over creation. And so, Lord, we pray today as we come and unpack your word together, we pray that you would come and be our teacher. Jesus, as you said, let, call no one teacher, for you have one teacher who is the Lord. And so we just acknowledge, Lord, that, that all we are is kind of a conduits of, your, of your, your voice to us. And so we pray that you would be speaking loud and clear, and that as always, as your children, we would be quick to listen was quick to follow what you, you show us is our next step on our spiritual journey. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, looking back, uh, honestly, uh, he never saw this coming. When he woke up that day, it was just like uh, any other day. He woke up early, he got up, he got dressed, he got his breakfast. There was, there was nothing to signal that this day was going to change his life forever. And yet, in fact, that's exactly what's going to happen. As he looks back now, years, years in the future, he looks back to that day, and he realizes this day changed his destiny. And not only for him, but for the entire nation that he serves. And yet that day when the experience started, um, it took him completely by surprise, 
And at first, it was so overwhelming. It was so all-encompassing that it was really hard for him to tell if what was happening to him was actually happening in real life or it was just some sort of incredible vision. When it started, it was terrifying. It was overwhelming. But it was also life-giving. And when it left him, it was... He was completely drained. But it was very clear that he'd been chosen to convey a message, a very important message, but a message that was deeply disturbing, a message that in many ways was depressing, a message that he knew he could not escape. And then... As soon as it started, the experience was over. Well, today we are continuing this series that we've been in for the last uh, almost uh, like 10 months or so uh, called Signs, a Path to Life. And for those of you who are brand new, whether you're joining us here in the worship center, you're online, you're out on the patio Uh, This is a study about Jesus. In fact, it's an in-depth study of the life and teaching of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers, uh, a man that we call John. We know him now today as the Apostle John, who towards the end of his life um, wrote his record, uh, we call it a gospel, of the life and teaching of Jesus based on his firsthand experiences uh, with Jesus over the, over the period of two or three years that they traveled together. Now, if you've been with us in this series, we're, we're actually coming today to the end of the, what I'm calling the first half of this gospel. It's really a little bit more than half. The gospel has 21 chapters. This is chapter 12. But, but uh, scholars look at this sort of as the first half of the gospel. And, uh, and so we're going to pick it up today in chapter 12, Um, as John is going to kind of wrap up the public ministry of Jesus and wrap up Israel's response to the coming of their Messiah and kind of summarize some of the key teaching that John has laid out for us in this first half of his gospel. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up. We're going to turn to uh, John chapter 12. There in your note sheet is a section called Signs, Rejection, and Response. We're going to pick it up in verse 37. So in verse 37, uh, John is kind of uh, wrapping it up. So let's set the stage. If you've been with us the last few weeks, we've watched as Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. He's come into the praise of the crowds, almost like the reception of a rock star on Palm Sunday. He's come in riding on a donkey. The crowds are going crazy, and yet the reality is that this week, as we know from the other Gospels, is going to be a week of conflict. It's going to be a week of controversy as the religious leaders who have already decided to kill him, they just haven't decided how and when to do it, Uh, It's Passover week. The the city is packed with pilgrims. 
And uh, so it's a week of controversy, and though he comes into the praise of many in the crowds on Sunday, that by Thursday night, he's going to be arrested and then executed on Friday. And so, so John is sort of now bringing to close this opening 12 chapters where he's kind of laid out for us uh, not only the claims of who Jesus is, but all these signs, these miraculous signs that Jesus has performed over the course of his ministry that substantiate who he is and why he's come and laid out the path for life. And so, so John is now going to look back, he's going to begin to wrap up this whole public ministry of Jesus. And in that context, this is what he says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in the presence. So remember, John has just highlighted seven of many more. But he says, even after John has performed so many signs in his presence, they still would not, or in the Greek, they did not believe in him. And so what John is going to say is that, is that when Jesus came to his own. When he came to the nation of Israel, when he came as the Messiah, by and large, the nation rejected him in spite of all the signs. But what he's going to say next is that this actually wasn't a surprise, that this was actually prophesied in the Old Testament by the prophets of Israel. And so he says in verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Now, from this point on, he's going to introduce two Old Testament prophecies from the prophet Isaiah, and he assumes that we know the Bible like the back of our head. So he's not going to really give a lot of intro to these prophecies. He's just going to say, you know the one about uh, for God so loved the world. Yeah, we know that one, <laughs> right? It's like he's going he's to introduce two quotes from Isaiah that they would have been very familiar with. Now, I want to give you a little bit of background on these quotes. So the first quote that he's going to uh, introduce is from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Now, this is a very famous prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. In fact, it's, it's probably the most famous prophecy in all the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah. So the prophecy actually ends, uh, starts the, at the end of chapter 52. It goes all of chapter 53. If you're in a life group that's using the study that we write, uh, you'll be studying this passage this week. But to summarize, it basically, uh, Isaiah says that one day, uh, that Yahweh is going to send a special messenger to the nation. And, and Isaiah calls him the servant of the Lord, all caps, servant of Yahweh. He says, but when this servant comes, when this messenger comes, the nation is not going to recognize him as a messenger of Yahweh. They're going to reject him. They're going to execute him. And when they execute him, they're going to think that they're doing God's will. They're going to think that he's getting what they deserve. When in reality... The servant of Yahweh is actually bearing their sins, the sins of the nation, okay? That's the first prophecy. The second prophecy is from Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, it describes, uh, Isaiah is describing his call to the ministry, his call to be a prophet. It's another very famous prophecy. And so uh, this takes us back to the story that we started the day with. You remember that story about this man who's kind of got up, it's like any other day, uh, but something's going to happen that day, an experience is so immersive, he doesn't even know if it's real life or it's a vision, I mean, it's changed his life forever. 
This is my version of what happens in Isaiah 6. So in Isaiah 6, Isaiah shares with us how he was called to be, the, to be a prophet of Israel. And he says that one day, and he doesn't, it, it's, uh, even today scholars will debate whether this actually happened in like real life in the temple of Jerusalem or it was like a vision of heaven. But, but one day Isaiah said that all of a sudden he is caught up into the presence of God. And he says he's in this huge temple. And that's why scholars will debate. It was maybe Jerusalem or no, it was like a heavenly temple. It's not even super clear. But he's, he's caught up in this temple. And in this temple, he has this amazing vision of Yahweh. And Yahweh is sitting on this throne, high, majestic throne. It's this incredibly majestic situation. And, and there's uh, smoke, incense is going up, and he's surrounded by these angelic beings that are called fiery ones. Or in Hebrew, we call them seraphim. And they, they have all these wings, and they're, they're flying, they're hovering around him, and they're praising him over and over. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh, Lord Almighty. The whole earth, in spite of the fall, the whole earth is full of his glory. Wherever you look in creation, it's just full of his glory. And so they're worshiping, and Isaiah is freaking out. <laughs> like, this is not what he expected when he had his, you know, eggs and no bacon because he's Jewish. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's not what he's expecting. And so he's freaking out. And what strikes him is he is just blown away. He's super aware of his unholiness. He's in the presence of purity. He's, he's just blown away by, by his own impurity and impurity of the people, the nation of Israel, who's rebelling against Yahweh. And so, so God supernaturally takes away his sin. And he especially focuses on taking it away from his lips. Why? Because he's going to be a prophet speaking for God. And so in the context of that, then God gives him the message that he is going to deliver to Israel. And it is devastating. It is depressing. It is a downer. And basically what God tells him is, is I'm going to send you to Israel with a message. And we know from Isaiah 1 through 5 kind of what that message was. Remember, this comes in chapter 6. It's a beautiful message. It's a message where God comes to Israel and calls him to repentance, and he promises that if they will turn back to him, that God will forgive them and restore them and bless them again. But if they don't, if they rebel, they'll be devoured by the sword. It's this beautiful opportunity. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. And yet God knows that Israel is not going to receive that message. They're going to reject that message. This is one of the best illustrations in all the Bible of what I often describe as the dimmer switch principle. That when God turns up the light, when God reveals new spiritual truth to us, we have a choice. We can either receive that truth and move towards the light. And if we do, that we will get more light. It's like the dimmer switch gets turned up. But on the other hand, if, if, if the light shines, if God reveals the truth and we don't want to see that truth or we don't want to align our lives with that truth, we don't want to turn from our sin or whatever, and we say, no, I don't want to see that, and we back away, we walk away, it's like the light goes down. We lose even the light we had. It's like a dimmer switch gets turned up or turned down or turned up. And this is one of the best illustrations and so what God says is, I'm sending you to the nation, but this is a passage that's just laced with irony and sarcasm. 
which is of great encouragement to me. <laughs> there in your note sheet, in chapter 6, this is the passage that John is going to be quoting in, in chapter 12. He said, in Isaiah 6, God says, this, says, go and tell this people, the nation of Israel, he's talking to Isaiah, be ever hearing but never understanding. He says, go and tell these people, sense the irony here, go and tell them, yeah, keep on listening, but you'll never get it. And he says, make the heart of this people calloused. How is he going to do that? He's going to make it calloused by by giving them this message, it's going to lead them to life, but he knows that when they reject that message, it's going to lead to a callousness of heart that's going to actually lead to their destruction. So he says, make the heart of his people, of the people calloused, make their ears dull, close their eyes. He says, otherwise, and you can just hear the irony here, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So God says, I'm going to send you with this powerful message, a message that could lead to life, but I know it's going to happen. They're going to reject that message because it's going to require repentance. They're going to turn away. And the very message that was designed to lead them to life is going to lead to a more callousness, a hardness of heart that's going to lead to their judgment. And so John, in this passage, He's going to reach back into Israel's history, into the prophecy about the coming of the servant of Yahweh, chapter 53, that would be rejected. And he's going to reach back into chapter 6. He's going to say history is repeating itself again, that once again, Israel is rejecting the light. The light of the world has come, and they've rejected that light, and the end result is darkness. So let's see how he develops this. And so in verse, 30, in verse 37, he says, even after Jesus had performed so many of these supernatural signs in their presence, they still would not, or like I said in the Greek, they did not believe. And this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. And this is a quote from Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our message? And as you go on, you're gonna see no one did. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord, the power of the Lord, been revealed? See, he's assuming we know that passage. We know it's coming. Rejection of Messiah. He says, and for this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, and this is a quote from chapter 6, he's blinded their eyes. He's hardened their hearts. So they cannot see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. And it's interesting, then Isaiah, I mean, John puts this little sidebar in. He said, Isaiah said this about him because he saw what? Good, that was 13 of you. <laughs> Let's try it again, verse 41. Jesus said this again because he saw what? Jesus' glory. Jesus glory. So it's so interesting. He's been quoting this passage about Isaiah seeing the glory of Yahweh. And yet he says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. He seems to be suggesting that when Isaiah had this vision of the one on the throne, he was actually seeing kind of the pre-incarnate word of God that was with God and was God who would one day come into the world. And so he's kind of laid out his major summary. Jesus has come. 
He's given the signs. He's given the message. But in general, the nation has rejected it. But he said there was a minority. Most rejected, but there was a minority. In fact, he says, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. So the, the most rejected him, there were, there were some. I said there was actually kind of many that believed in some even of the leaders. Now, I want you to think back with me to the intro to this gospel, the first 18 verses. We'll come back to this later. But, but one of the things that John told us way back in the intro as he's introducing Jesus, he's giving us the overview of his life and ministry. Remember what he said. In fact, I put it there in your note sheet, the next verse. This is what he said in the intro. He said, he came to that which was his own. Or it's his own nation, his own people, but his own did not receive him. That kind of is what, what the first part of the summary in chapter 12 says. He says, yet to all who did receive him. There was a minority uh, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. And so John, John says, hey, the nation by and large rejected him, but there were some, there were many who, uh, even among the leaders who believed, but catches, but because of the Pharisees, kind of, the, kind of this uh, powerful religious class, uh, they would not openly acknowledge their faith because they were afraid that they'd be put out of the synagogue. You may remember back in chapter 9 that this is exactly what happened to the man who had been born blind from youth, or from, he'd been born blind. And remember when Jesus healed him, the religious leaders kept trying to get him to recant his testimony of who had healed him, and he refused to do that. So they put him out of the synagogue, which catches is like an exclusion from the entire social life of the nation. The synagogue's not just where you worship, it's where school is held, it's where your business meetings are held, the community, it's like their community center. And so they, they were afraid of that. So they believed in Jesus, but they were kind of like secret disciples. In verse 43, it says, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. All right, so, so he's kind of given us the summary now of how the nation responded. Most people rejected Jesus, but there were a minority who believed uh, but now he's going to give us a summary of Jesus' final teaching uh, this last week in Jerusalem before he's arrested. And what we're going to see, this is John's way of summing up some of the most important teaching of Jesus we've seen throughout this whole gospel. All right? So let's see what he says. So he says, then Jesus cried out at some point in the week. He doesn't even doesn't even tell us when, Jesus cried out, and he's going to make several statements here that in many ways are going to summarize what we've seen in the Gospel of John. That number one, he says, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in, but in the one who sent me. This is something we've seen Jesus say, say over and over and over again, that his teaching is not his own. His miracles are not his own. He's not come on his own. He, he's, a, he's part of Team Father, like, we're, we are a team. And what this means, though, is to reject Jesus is to reject whom? The Father, the one who sent him. And so that's been a key teaching throughout this gospel. And then in verse, the next one, he makes the next statement. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. This is another amazing claim. We've seen Jesus make these kind of claims We've seen, remember back in chapter five, he called God his own father, making himself equal to God. We saw in chapter eight, 
I and the Father are one. They're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're going to stone him for, for blasphemy. That he's making these claims to deity throughout the gospel. And here's the next one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like, who says that? Right? Who says that? Crazy man? Possibly. Yeah, uh, charlatan? Possibly. Or someone who truly is who he claims to be. Right? The third thing that he says is, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. This is what he said back in chapter 8. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. They'll never walk in darkness. And so this is why he came, to light up the path to who God is, how a relationship with God works, how life works. And then the next, the next, the next question, is, the next thing he's going to say is how we, our, our response to his teaching determines our eternal destiny. He said this over and over again, right? Chapter 5, whoever believes in me has crossed over from death to life. Chapter 3, uh, that the light of the world has come, that, that, that the judgment is on those who, if you reject the, the light, that that the, you're choosing the darkness and you're condemned by your own choice. He's said it all the way through here. He says it again. If anyone hears my words, my teaching, but doesn't keep them, I don't judge that person. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save them. That's what he said back in chapter three. But he said, but there is a judge for the one who rejects me and doesn't accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn him. So that's what the judgment it's, you know, it's like the teaching of Jesus that you've heard will judge your life. And he said, for I didn't speak on my own. So he comes back to where he started. I, did not, I didn't speak on my own, but the Father who sent me, he commanded me to say all that I've spoken. And notice this. He says, I know that his what? What's the next word? Command. His command. I want you to underline that. You know, often we talk about the teaching of Jesus as if it's invitation. And it is, right? Whoever believes in me, right? He's constantly inviting us to come to receive this new life. But I want you to catch this. The teaching of Jesus is not simply an invitation. It is a command. And how we respond to that command in obedience or disobedience will determine our eternal destiny. And so when we're sharing Christ with someone, it's not, it's not just that there's an invitation. There is a command. And the question is, when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, will we respond to that command? Or will we reject that command and choose darkness? And so he ends up, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. All right, so, so we come to the end of this first 12 chapters, what I'm calling the first half of the book. Scholars often refer to this first half, book, uh, half of the book of John as the book of signs. The book of signs. And so, so John has started off, he's made these incredible claims about Jesus. We'll talk about that in just a minute in the intro. He's given us in 11 and a half chapters to support his claims about Jesus. He says, but by and large, the nation that Jesus came to as the Messiah rejected him. There were some who received him. And here's a summary of his teaching that I've documented in this gospel. 
All right? So we're coming to a final, we're coming to a key turning point in the Gospel of John. Catch this. After this, Jesus will no longer talk to the public again. This is it. This is the end of the public ministry of Jesus. As we go into the next series, it's all conversation with his disciples. This is the end. And the question is, how did Israel respond to the coming of the Messiah? And John says, by and large, they rejected it, but there were some who believed. And so we're coming to a critical turning point in the gospel. And that leads to a very important question for each of us here, even if we're trying to evade the question. And that leads to the next section. So I'm just going to ask you one question today, and I've got to admit, on the surface, it's going to sound a little simple, especially for those of you who are longtime followers of Jesus. But let me promise you, this is anything but simple. It's incredibly profound, and it's going to require some deep heart searching and openness before the Lord for each of us. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Signs, the Decision. And here's the question, simple question. What's your response to Jesus? So let's set this up. We've seen today that we're at this critical turning point. John has started his gospel with the intro. Let's remember that. Like, remember when we started this back in January. He started with this by introducing us to Jesus. Remember what I said? It was like, a, like an attorney who's making his opening statement before a case. Remember that? And, and so he starts off with these incredible claims about this man that we know as Jesus Christ. So if you're living in the first century, you've heard of a man named Jesus Christ who, who was born in the backwaters of Israel uh, in a backwater province of Judea, um, who was crucified uh, under the reign of a, of a Roman governor named uh, Pilate. Um, You've heard of this man, and, and now John is going to introduce this man that you've heard about to you, and this is how he starts it in his gospel. In the very beginning, go back to the beginning of time, go back to the start of the Bible, in the beginning, go back as far as you want, and when you get there, you're going to meet a person, and his name is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Drop the mic. You're like, whoa. And he goes on, in fact, it was through him everything was made, everything you see in this cosmos. Uh, it's not like what the philosophers say, the Greek philosophers, that it's always been there. It's not, it's not like that, that no, no, he made everything. In fact, there's, there's not one single thing that was made that, was, that he didn't make. And in him was life itself, and that life is the light of the world. And there was a time and a place where the word became flesh, and he tabernacled amongst them. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only God. And no one has ever seen God, but the only, the son who is God has explained him. You remember how I summarize this? I summarize like this, that what John is claiming is there's a time 
There was a time and a specific place in human history. There was a time and a place when the God who created all time and all space entered into his creation, became a part of the human race to rescue us, to reveal himself. Quite the claim. And now after he, that intro, he spends the next 11 and a half chapters laying out the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the claims of Jesus, the, signs, the supernatural signs that reveal who he is and why he has come and the path to life for all of us. After laying that all out, he says, so here's how Israel responded. The question is for us, how will we respond? Now, I think we need to ask this question at two different distinct levels. The first level is for those of you who have never yet given your life to Christ. That whether you're here today, maybe you're joining us online, uh, you're outside, that, that you have been, something has been drawing you to this place. A, a friend invited you, like, like in our first impressions, someone invited you to Rocky Peak, or maybe it was during COVID and there was just a, a depression, anxiety in your life, or someone said you should check out this church. However it happened, you find yourself here. But, but honestly, prior to today's message, if someone said to you, uh, are you a Christian? Are you a follower of Jesus? That, that you would have said something like this, well, no, I don't consider myself religious. But I, I, am, I, I do go to church. I'm, I'm kind of experiencing this church, and it's just really intriguing. But I, I, no, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not one of those yet. I'm not like a born-again person. Like, I, I'm not one of those, right? And so you're here... You've been joining us for this series. You've seen the claims of Jesus. You've heard John describe these supernatural signs. The question is, how will you respond? As John said in the, in the, in the intro, that he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And the question is, for you, what's your response to Jesus, and will you receive him as the one he claims to be, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, God in the flesh, who has come to give his life for us, that we might rise with him to a new life, both here and the next life, what he calls eternal life. And if you're here today, you're watching online, and you're saying, I'm ready to do that. I'm ready to ask Jesus in my life. I, I'm ready to turn from the darkness and to follow him. I, I don't want to be like Israel, that turn from the light and have a hard heart. I want, to, I want to be saved. Then at the end of this message today, I'm going to give you the chance to give your life to Jesus. So that's, that's like uh, level number one. Right? How are you responding? You're not a believer. Let me ask you this. Here's level number two. This is a question for those of us who are believers, 
It could be that you came to Jesus last week. It could be that you came to Jesus 42 years ago. But you, you would self-identify. If I asked you on the way into church, or if someone asked you, are you a Christian? Are you a follower? You'd say, yes, I, I, I'm a Christian, right? And so the question I have for you is, what's your response to what we've learned about Jesus? And I want to remind you of something that Jesus said, that Jesus said back in John 8 that, that those, the way to find out whether we truly believe in Jesus is not so much by what we say as what we do. So in John 8, you'll, you'll probably remember this passage, this powerful passage. Uh, John says, to the Jews who had believed in him. So Jesus had been teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles, and some had started to believe in him. And he says, to the Jews who have believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching. And if you were here then, you remember that, that word hold to in the Greek is the Greek word meno. Remember, it's if you remain in me. It's the same, same word as like in John 15, if you abide in me and I abide in you. And it, it, it says, if you remain in my teaching, you, you stick to, you hold on to, you follow my teaching, he said, then you're really my disciples. That's how you can tell. So there's gonna be people that claim to be my disciples, but they don't really hold on to my teaching. They don't really follow it. They don't take it seriously. They may call themselves disciples. They're really not. He says, but if you do, you hold on to my teaching, you, as we say here, you listen and you follow. He says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. He says that there's a, there's a sequence here, that if you, if you truly believe, you'll hold on to, you'll listen, you'll follow, and that will set a sequence in motion that as you listen and as you follow the truth about life, the truth about God, the truth about your relationship, the truth will begin to get clearer and clearer. And as it does, it will lead you to freedom. So, so the question for those of us who call themselves, call ourselves followers of Jesus is how are you responding? So Jesus has made some pretty big claims, hasn't he? I remember he, he claimed that, that uh, he had come to give us living water. The water of life that alone can satisfy the deepest thirst of the human heart. He claimed that he is the bread of life, the one who alone can satisfy the deepest hunger of the human heart. He claimed to be the light of the world, that if we follow him, we'd not walk in darkness. He claimed to be the good shepherd who's come to give us life and life to the full. He's claimed that he is the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in him will never die. And so the question is, are you experiencing the fulfillment of those promises in your life? Are you holding on to his word? If we were to look at your life and the choices you make, the values that you hold, the opinions that you hold, the way you think, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, like would your life reflect the teaching of Jesus? Would, if, if your life were on trial, 
and we were bringing forth the evidence, whether you really hold on to his words or not, would you be convicted or would you be set free as being a follower of Jesus? And let me ask you this. Are you increasingly in your life discovering this deep satisfaction of soul that Jesus said would come to those who follow him? Are, are you finding yourself fuller of Jesus? Do you find him satisfying this deepest hunger increasingly? Do you, do you find the contentment in your life growing? Do you find your passion for eternal things growing? Do you find your passion for Jesus growing? Do you find your love of lost people growing? Do you feel like the love of Jesus is growing? Are you less harsh and more forgiving like, do you see the life of Jesus being born in your life? How are you responding to Jesus? I want to ask one specific or give one specific, uh, I want to highlight one specific area of our life that I think is extremely important for us in our culture right now, very challenging. Um, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that the scene is the last week of Jesus' life. You know that he rode into Jerusalem packed with pilgrims uh, as a rock star, to the reception you know, of, of a rock star. But you know that, that, that he knows that this, the week's not gonna end like this. He's gonna be executed. His disciples don't know that. They, they still think that he is the Messiah and what that means to them is that he's about to unleash his power, the power that calmed the seas. He's about to unleash his power on Rome, and he is about to bring in the long-promised kingdom of God in power that's going to lead to a time of unprecedented political power, unprecedented peace through, through that power and unprecedented prosperity. And, and you're a disciple, and you're following Jesus. You're seeing the crowds go crazy, and you're thinking, like, it's about to happen. But, of course, that's not what's about to happen. And you remember when those Gentiles or Greeks come and they want to see Jesus? You remember how it triggers him? And he, he gives this powerful illustration where he says that it, Unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. You take that grain of wheat, you put it on your windowsill, you come back a year later, it's still on your windowsill. If you want to see uh, a grain plant come up bearing many seeds, that seed has to go in the ground. It has to be crushed by the earth. It has to be has to be watered through the moisture until that it's broken down and it sh its hull breaks apart. And out of that death comes new life. And so Jesus, of course, he is the grain that goes in the ground who's going to suffer and die, be broken apart so that we can be sprouted forth a new life. We get that. But Jesus Right after he said this, he went on to say, you know what? In this path of persecution, 
is not just for me, it's for those who would follow me. In fact, this is what he said there in your note sheet. He says, this is, he says immediately after this illustration about him going in the, in the, in the crown and die, it's time for him to be glorified. He says, anyone, circle that, anyone, everyone, each person who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates her life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Do you want to keep your life for eternal life? He says, and you have to be willing to lose your life. He says, whoever serves me must follow me. There's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts, no exceptions. And where I am, my servant will be. So he says, if you want to hang with me, you have to be willing to walk with me on the path I'm heading. I'm heading to a path of death. You have to be willing to walk that path with me. Now, I want you to think about this. I want you to think how startling that teaching would have been to his disciples. They're coming into Jerusalem thinking power, peace, prosperity. Life of pleasure and popularity. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm not that kind of Messiah. This is the kind of Messiah I am, is I'm going into the ground. I am going to die, and anyone who wants to travel with me has to go with me. And I want you to think about that. It's really easy for us to read that and spiritualize it, but I want you to think of this, that of his disciples, he was saying that to every single one, except John, the author of our, our gospel, every single one is going to literally give their life for Jesus. Some are going to be beheaded by, by a sword. Some are going to be crucified, literally. One is going to be crucified upside down. But every one of his men that he's saying that to there, other than John, every one is going to give their life for Jesus. You want to go with me? You want to go with me? You want this eternal life? Okay, this is the path. And the one who goes with me, I will be with them. Men and women, I raise this because if you haven't noticed, and I'm sure you have, have you noticed that the cost of following Jesus is going up in our culture today? Wow, it is going up, isn't it? it there, there used to be a day when we were sort of respected to be a pastor. There used to be a day on, on our buildings, city halls would have verses over them. Right? Like, the, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. I, I'm not saying that it was idyllic in any way. I'm not saying that we were a Christian nation in the sense of following Jesus. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying was, there was a time when Christians were to some degree, accepted and respected. I'm not saying that if you were a Christian, it was your path to power, your path to prosperity, your path to uh, possessions, although in some parts of the country it was. That's why people would go to church, to network for business. But I'm not saying that is true. Certainly it's not been true in California in my lifetime. But... There was a time when it wasn't a hindrance 
to power. It wasn't a hindrance to promotion. It wasn't a hindrance to possessions. But I'm telling you, unless Jesus does something remarkable in our nation soon, the price is going up. And as American Christians, we are not used to this price. We're sort of like the disciples, that we, we're following a Messiah that we think is gonna, hey, if we follow Jesus, life's gonna go well. I want that abundant life, and I want it here, and I want it now, right? Well, that's kind of what we're used to, and this thought that, hey, we may lose a promotion, or we may be fired from our job, or we may not be hired, or that people would look at us as dangerous, that people would actually slander us as haters, right? That things are changing. And so what it does is it forces us to ask the question, do you really believe in Jesus? And do you believe enough to walk with him on the path of suffering? Because Jesus says, that is the path of eternal life. He who hates his life in this world will save it. The one who loves their life, he's trying to hold on to that. I'm going to hold on to my power. I'm going to hold on to popularity. I'm going to hold on to possessions. I'm going to hold on to this popularity thing. He says, you hold on to that, you'll lose it. And so it's a powerful challenge. For the disciples, this is a huge paradigm shift. It's going to be very confusing for them. They're going to need some help on the path forward. And that's why we have a new series coming. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come and, Lord, I would confess that if we ask, like, who likes, who likes popularity? Who likes success? Who likes esteem? Who likes prosperity? I'm at the first of the line that uh, this path of suffering is not what I want. And yet, Jesus, you've made it clear that if we follow you, if we receive this new life, that we will be transformed so much that the world will no longer love us because we're so different, that the darkness will hate the light and And so, Lord, I think for for many of us, myself included, like we need a new paradigm of what it means to believe in you. And so, Father, we pray for your grace. We pray for your patience. We pray for your power. That as we face a challenging time in our culture, that you would give us grace to embrace this new reality like your disciples will do. And not only to embrace it, but to embrace it with joy to embrace it with love, to embrace it with peace, to embrace it with power, all the things you promised your men in these coming chapters, that you would go with us and that the world would hate us, that we would not be afraid because you have overcome the world. The future is secure. Our life is is founded in you and it's secure in you. And so, Lord, we pray you be gracious with us 
as a church, individually. I pray for our country. I pray for churches in this nation, God. I, I pray that you'd begin to wake us up to this new reality we're heading into and you would strengthen your church. Father, I think of what you said to Peter on the night that you were arrested. You said, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that after you've turned, you would strengthen your brothers. And so, Father, I pray that, that you would strengthen us, that we would rise up to be the church of God we were created to be, that we would not fear the enemy, we would not fear rejection, that we would not fear the lies, that we would not fear the slander, that we would be like those early disciples filled with your Holy Spirit, that they would look at us and say, they were blown away by the courage and they would recognize that these are people who had been with Jesus. God, I pray you'd breathe life into your church all over this nation, a hunger and a passion for truth, a love for people, even our enemies, and a courage to face the future, not hiding as secret disciples who are looking for the praise of men, but as people that are proud to be followers of yours looking for the praise of God. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, what a great day to offer those of you who have, are not yet followers of Jesus to give your life to Him. Jesus was very clear that before we go to battle, we need to count our troops. Before we build a house, we need to see if we have enough money. He said, you need to think this through because there's gonna be a cost. Maybe you're here today, you've never given your life to Jesus, but he's calling to you. You sense that bread of life calling to you. You sense the water of life being offered. There's something thirsty in you. You may not understand everything, but you know you need Jesus. You're ready to give your life to him, and to ask him into your life that you want this light of life leading you not only for this life, but for the next. And if that's you, I'm gonna pray a very simple prayer right now. And I'm gonna ask you to join me, pray along under your breath or in your heart. The Lord will hear and invite Jesus into your life. And so let's pray together. Dear Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I believe that you are the light of the world. I ask you to come into my life to forgive my sin, to teach me how to follow you, to fill me with your Holy Spirit, and to save a spot in the next life for me. And as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, first of all, if you just asked Jesus into your life and gave him your life, I wanna welcome you to the kingdom. You have just started the most incredible journey you could ever imagine. A journey that starts here and will go on into eternity. You've crossed over from death to life. Your life is going to begin to change and there's gonna be new, new directions that Jesus has for you. And if you just pray that prayer, I would love to share with you just some first steps of following Jesus. And so what I'd ask you to do, whether you're 
you're watching online, you could send me an email or send the church info at Rocky Peak an email. If you're here with us, you could write it on the little connect card inside your program. We just fill out the front and the back, just say, I gave my life to Jesus. Those cards will make their way to me. I will send you a, an email this week of here's some first steps in your new relationship with Jesus. So Lord, we come before you as a church and we make a statement here that we believe. We believe that you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God, that you are the word who is with God and was God. We believe that you've come to give us life. That by your death, you've overcome the world. You've overcome the great enemy. You've overcome the sin in our life. We believe that you're the bread of life. And we want to affirm that today as we sing. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.